If we have never met before, my name is Adam, and I'm one of the elders here at Normandale, and I'm always grateful for an opportunity to preach. You know, it was about uh, a little more than a month ago that Mason was talking to us in an elder meeting. He said, I'm going to need a couple of volunteers because when our baby comes, I want to be out of the pulpit for a week or two. And so Casey did a great job last week uh, bringing the word for us, uh, and I'm up this week, so I'm excited to be here. And you know, in similar fashion, Casey talked about the fact that um, he went to that story of Naaman because it was something that he read in his, his personal Bible study time, and the Lord really spoke to him through it. And so this morning, uh, you know, Scott asked me earlier, are you going to continue on with the Naaman story? Uh, I, I chose to go with something that, that the Lord spoke to me through in reading on my own for preparation for our life group. We, me and uh, Paul Mahan are kind of co-teaching a class on Wednesday nights. And, you know, we, we thought as we relaunched the life group, what, what's the best place to start? And we're in the middle of the major and minor prophets, like the doom and gloom of the Old Testament, right? It's maybe not the best like church growth model to jump in there, but it's been so meaningful because we have seen just um, in Isaiah and in Ezekiel and in Habakkuk, God providing a way for his people. God promising judgment, but also hope in the midst of it. And so as I was reading, I came to Isaiah 50, and it was one of those passages that just kind of stuck with me, where I read it again the next day, and then I couldn't quit thinking about it. You know, and another day, I read it again, and it just like kept coming back up. And, and similar to Casey last week, it there was some parts of it that arrested me in my tracks where I just couldn't shake it. And so it caused me really to take a moment to worship God. And so throughout the week, I read it and I read it again and just kept returning to it. And I'll be honest with you, this one, like it took shape in my mind in multiple ways over the weeks that I've been studying it and looking at it. And that to me is one of the exciting things about God's word. Like, it doesn't change, right? It's, it's fixed, it's inspired, it's, it's immutable, it's useful. It says about itself for teaching, correction, for growth in righteousness. But these, we have the very words of God. Like, but as we read it and reflect on it, it changes us. Like, the meaning doesn't change based on how we feel or how we want to feel or make it feel, but but sometimes, you know, there are those who may try to alter what, it's, what it says or make it say what they want it to say when they're feeling. But I love keeping track in my Bible of when someone has preached a passage and uh, I'll mark the date and, you know, write their name next to it, maybe even part of their outline. I get so excited when someone preaches that same passage because I'm like, I want to see how they're going to treat this. You know, I want to see what they're going to draw out. And not that that it changes in any way, but, but I get excited when we have a passage like that and I get to spend time in it, like savoring it and studying it. And so I, I want I relate that in some ways. I'm a self-admitted coffee snob. Like if you know me very well, I love coffee. 
I, I love like what you can tell about the tasting notes and like thinking about, you know, oh, I can tell that this was grown in Ethiopia because it has like this, this fruity flavor to it. And, you know, that's a Colombian bean or I know how it was processed and picked and treated after it was picked. You know, did they sing to it? You know, maybe not that far, but, but I love coffee. I love to savor it. But I wouldn't know all of these things about it if I hadn't spent a lot of time drinking coffee. Like I, I love coffee because it provides time to be with friends. It's my morning ritual with, with Jennifer. Like, and if I hadn't taken the time to learn like what makes this taste good and others not so good, uh, I wouldn't have gone that deep and I wouldn't be able to savor it in the same way. So reading God's word can have similar gains for us as we savor it. Like, determine not to just read it, but to let it read you. And don't just gloss over those passages that are hard to understand, or maybe, like, you don't know why it was written. And so even in the start of Isaiah 50 today, we've got a passage like that, that I initially was like, oh, I'm just going to skip that part, because, like, it's kind of, it, I don't know how it flows together, you know? But there's a great value for us in looking at these things together, especially as we use textual clues within the Word of God to interpret it, to understand it. One of the greatest tools we have is Scripture for interpreting other Scripture. Like, you don't necessarily need the commentaries or the Bible dictionaries. Those are, those are help, helpful tools, but you don't need the, you know, $1,200 package for, of Logos Bible software to understand necessarily what it means. You can often find within the text what this is intended by the author. So we'll find ways that, that being broadly read and familiar with Scripture really informs your understanding of what you're reading. And so if you haven't turned there yet, please go to Isaiah 50 with me, and you'll find there's even this subheading there in, you know, verses 4 through 11, the obedient servant. And that's kind of what I've titled our message today. And I will say in talking about all that, the inspiration of Scripture, these numbers and subheadings, chapters, verses, that part's not inspired, right? That was added after the fact so that we can study it together and get to the same place. Because I imagine I've seen a replica of the Isaiah scroll, and it, that thing is massive, and you've got to like roll the different parts. And imagine me saying, let's, let's look at the middle of the book of Isaiah, and you've got to get your phone out and kind of like just, I'll be like, all right, start scrolling now, you know, and like, just let it roll. All right, stop. Okay, we're maybe in the right place. No, those are, those are added for our, our benefit to understand what's going on and to be able to find a place and navigate. So if it's been a while, if you've, since you've been in the book of Isaiah, let me give you just this brief bit of background. This entire book represents prophecy given to Isaiah for the Israelites, and there's really two main issues for them judgment and hope. And the Lord through Isaiah spends all this time telling them that they will be taken into exile and that God will use some of their pagan neighbors to accomplish it, right? This seems like the, the bad news bears. Like it could be literally almost too much to bear, but throughout the book, there's also this thread of hope this thread of redemption, this thread of restoration, this hope that Jerusalem would be the place that they would live with God forever and worship him. So as we approach these kind of latter chapters of Isaiah, we see God introduce his servant, the one who has come on a mission. 
And you'll discover as you read Isaiah from start to finish that, that man's ultimate destiny is really bound up with God's servant. Like what we'll see today in the end of chapter 50 is that the fate of each person is really contingent on their attitude toward that servant. So there are really four passages in the end of Isaiah known as the servant songs. And like if, if you know, Isaiah is this book of um, like a rock band's discography, like these are kind of the, the greatest hits, right? This is, this is U2's Joshua Tree. If you want to argue with me about, you know, the best U2 album, that's a really good one. Um, but don't discredit the B-sides, you know, don't discredit all those other albums helped you get there. But we look at these servant songs, and they're in these four places in Isaiah. Chapter 42, we see the servant's mission. Chapter 49, the servant brings salvation. Chapter 50, the obedient servant. And then chapter 52 through 53, really see the suffering servant. And you may be familiar with that, that passage. It's preached often, you know, around Easter or around Christmas or when we want to get a glimpse of Jesus in the Old Testament. We often turn to Isaiah 53. So my primary goal today, if there's nothing else that we get, I want us to see Jesus. I want us to really see him as God's servant. I want us to give him glory and honor and praise that he's due through what we read. And I want us to see ourselves in light of him. Like, so let's read this passage together. And then we'll dig into it a little bit, verse by verse. So starting in chapter 50, verse 1, it says, This is what the Lord says, Where is your mother's divorce certificate that I used to send her away? Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? Look, you were sold for your iniquities, and your mother was sent away because of your transgressions. Why was no one there when I came? Why was there no one to answer when I called? Is my arm too weak to redeem Do I have no power to rescue? Look, I dry up the sea by my rebuke. I turn the rivers into a wilderness. Their fish rot because of lack of water and die of thirst. I dress the heavens in black and make sackcloth their clothing. Then verse four, the obedient servant. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are instructed to know how to sustain the weary with a word. He awakens me each morning. He awakens my ear to listen like those being instructed. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I did not turn back. I gave my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. The Lord God will help me. Therefore, I have not been humiliated. Therefore, I have set my face like flint and I know I will not be put to shame. The one who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us confront each other. Let us, who has a case against me, let him come near me. In truth, the Lord God will help me. Who will condemn me? Indeed, all of them will wear out like a garment. A moth will devour them. Who among you fears the Lord and listens to his servant? Who among you walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord. Let him lean on his God. Look, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with torches, walk in the light of your fire and of the torches you have lit. This is what you'll get from my hand. You will lie down in a place of torment. Let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and that you speak to us through it. We ask that you would use this time to do just that, that I would get out of the way and not stumble, but point us to you in your glory this morning. Lord, I pray that as we see the obedient servant, we see an example of who we follow and how we follow. So we ask this all in your son's name. Amen. So when we, when we arrive at these uh, first three verses, this is where I said, uh, maybe we should just gloss over that. Like, we're not going to spend an incredible amount of time there, but it would be a great disservice if I just jumped past it, right? So this is where it would be really easy to just kind of throw up your hands. If you first come to chapter 50, you're like, what is he talking about? Like, where is your mother's divorce certificate? Where did this come from? So looking at it in context, uh, what's going on, we need to see that it may be a continuation of the last chapter's thought. And that's exactly what happens here. That's a clue that we can get. If we look at verse 14 of chapter 49, we see this. It says, Zion says, the Lord has abandoned me. The Lord has forgotten me. We see Zion, the appointed place where God's people live and serve him, saying like, we've been left behind. Like, God has forgotten about us. We've been overlooked. Like, where is he? We're so alone in this exile in Babylon. And there's a bit of kind of drama among the people here. Like, we've been left behind. And the start of chapter 50 is God's response to their cry. There's this like lingering question among Israel. Where's God been in this exile? Where's he at? Was he, was he punishing us or is it just he's like inattentive? He's, he's not showing up. And God's response here in verses one through three are really his self-defense. You know, throughout history, throughout literature of scripture, we see God refer to his people and their relationship almost as a marriage. Like, and, and we see that portrayed that way. And so he says, where is your mother's divorce certificate? He's really saying, I haven't broken my marriage covenant with you. Like, though you, though I might have the right due to your unfaithfulness to me. He says, to which of my creditors did I sell you? Right? None. But then he's quick to give them a reason for their exile. He says, look, you were sold for your iniquities and your mother was sent away because of your transgressions. It was your sin that caused this. Like in some sense, like the Yahweh God is not the cause of their exile. The cause is their own fickleness, their own fickle hearts. And then they're forfeiting their claim and they're crying out, why did you do this to us? Right? And God's answer is, you did this to yourselves. And that, that makes me think of my wife's classroom. My wife teaches middle school and she's done it for a long time. She often tells me about kids that come to her. If you're a teacher, you probably relate to this. Like, they come to her and they say, Miss, uh, that's, you know, how they refer to everybody. Uh, Miss, why'd you give me that grade? You know, and she often, much more patient than me, uh, is thoughtful with those kids and her responses. This is the grade that you earned, not the grade that I gave you, right? When we, when we take a test, when we take a quiz, when we know what's coming up in school, we fulfill those obligations and we get grades based on the proper fulfillment of those goals and roles and right answers, right? So I see Israel here in some way, kind of like saying, God, why'd you give me this grade? And he's like, you earned this grade, you know? Uh, 
Some days, no one would be getting a good grade if it was just an arbitrary decision based on the, the day at school, right? But there's, that's why we have those learning goals and achievements and all, that, all those acronyms that I don't know, but my wife talks about, you know? Um, they're they're du- duplicitous. But he says, I haven't abandoned you. You've suffered the results of your consequences, but yet I'm the divine God. I'm sovereign like these following verses really show his power, his strength. They even, you know, he says, what, is my arm too weak to redeem? Like this rhetorical question, no. He says, or do I not have the power to rescue? Look, I dry up the sea by my rebuke. Like think about a time in Israel's history when they saw the sea dried up. It was when they were escaping from Egypt, when God used Moses to take the people out of Egypt. Think about his power in this moment. And then we see this transition come, this change in voice. Like suddenly we're hearing the voice of the servant when we get to verse four. The one speaking shifts and we get an indication of that based on the text here. It says, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are instructed. Like I can't even make it three words into that without pausing for just a minute to draw attention to something notable here. We see this in verse 4, in verse 5, in verse 7, in verse 9, this name, the Lord God. In your, in your translation, it might be something different. It might say the sovereign God. But depending on how it's translated, this is kind of a Hebrew double noun here for Lord God. It's two different words. One, the name Yahweh, and one, the name Adonai. And so the speaker, this servant, Jesus, in the Old Testament speaking here, says this name for God to communicate something. This word Adonai is the plural form of the name of God. It means master or Lord. Like it denotes that the one who is being spoken about is the Lord and he's sovereign over all things. Like he is the one to whom he responds, the one to whom he listens. And then you add that name Yahweh, this most holy name of God, the, the name that the Israelites were not even allowed to say out loud out of reverence and respect for it. You know, you don't actually say it, but this name tells us something about the servant, the one whom he hears from. He pushes the focus away from himself into the one whose work he is to be about. Yahweh is the covenant-keeping God. This sovereign master Lord is the one he's speaking about here. He's the one who has given him the tongue of one who has been a disciple. And so we see that. The one a tongue of those who are instructed, it says. He has learned that he will share from the same one who's God over creation, God over his people, God most high. But what's the purpose for those words? What is the purpose of being instructed and being a disciple? It's to know how to sustain the weary with a word. To sustain the weary. Think about Israel coming out of captivity, out of exile. They're, they're weary. They're, they've been away from home. They've been displaced. They've been in a, in a foreign place. And they've been so much to unpack there in this. But I want us to see Jesus and see ourselves in light of him here. See Jesus in this. Like he is the obedient servant who is an example for all of us of what an obedient servant looks like. In 1 John 2, 6, we, that's where Mason's going to be even uh, in the coming weeks. In 1 John, we see that the one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. So we know we're to be 
like that example of an obedient servant. We'll never be perfect like he was perfect. We will never be completely without sin in these times. But we can model our obedience on the perfect obedience of Jesus and grow in our righteousness. But he has given the tongue of those who are instructed. And in seeing Jesus in this passage, I draw us to preteen Jesus, right? When he's 12 years old and his parents forget him in the temple for a day. Like uh, they, they, they make it part way back home. They're like, oh, we forgot something. Uh, they go back to, to retrieve him, right? And where do they find Jesus? In the temple talking to the scribes and the teachers. And in Luke 2.47, it says he was all who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. In Matthew 7, we see something similar. Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, and in verse 28 it says, when he had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. He taught like one who had authority, and this authority came from the Lord God. We see that in these, in these verses. His sovereign Lord. He's not just highly educated. He doesn't have a PhD and an MDiv and a MS and a BA, like not according to the world standards, but because he hears the Father's voice. So really that's one point out of this for us from verse four. The obedient servant has an informed tongue. It may very well be the case that for the greatest thing a disciple can do, the greatest thing an informed disciple does is deliver the words of consolation to weary souls. Isn't that what we do when we proclaim the good news of the gospel? We're proclaiming good news for weary souls. And this great knowledge isn't for our own benefit, not for us to be puffed up, but to bring sustaining hope to weary hearts. And next we move on into the same verse. See that the obedient servant has an open ear in verse four. It says, he awakens me each morning. He awakens my ear to listen like those being instructed. You know, some, some translations put this as morning by morning. Like he awakens me each morning, morning by morning. It brings to mind that, that great hymn, you know, morning by morning, new mercies I see. <laughs> I'm not a singer. Sorry, y'all. That's why I'm not up here, you know, helping lead. But it's daily. It's this, in the gospels, we're told Jesus arose daily to spend time with his father. And during these times, he listens to God's instruction. Mark 1, verse 35, we see very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, and he made his way to a deserted place, and there he was praying. This is not the only instance in the Gospels where Jesus is seen getting up early, going away, spending time with God in prayer. He's praying and listening, praying and listening. So I'd ask us, are we being obedient in listening to him through prayer through his word? Like, is it, a, is it a daily thing? Is it something that awakens you in the morning to get out of bed to do? We need to lean in here because we daily must hear from him as his disciples so that the spirit can enable us to speak a word to a weary soul in that time. Moving forward in verse five, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I did not turn back. The obedient servant moves forward. There's a bit even of a, of a double meaning in this one that, that I don't want us to miss in the statement that the Lord God has opened my ear. Sure, he's, he's opened it to hear the Lord's instruction. There's also a, a parallel here to 
in the Old Testament times, when a servant was released by his master, if he desired to stay with that master, it says in Exodus 21, he could, he could state that, like, I want to stay here and serve you. And that master would, would take an awl, which is essentially like a giant needle to, to poke a hole in some leather. He would drive that awl through his ear to indicate that he was his servant. So we see even that connection here, Christ's full submission to the Father, which he recognizes regularly in the Gospels. Like, I've come to be about his business. I've come to be about his business. He's not rebellious. He doesn't turn back from the task. And then in verse 6, we see the obedient servant say, I gave my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. The obedient servant gave himself sacrificially. Notice how it starts. I gave my back. Like it doesn't start with him as the one taken advantage of by the Romans or wrongly maligned. His suffering was written about hundreds of years before he ever came and he gave his back on our behalf. Like all four gospels speak to a fulfillment of these verses in some way. They talk about him being beaten, mocked, you know, the men gambling for his clothing, putting a, a crown of thorns on his head to, to make fun of him as the king. They mocked him, but we see Jesus, and we see him give himself sacrificially. And this may be one that it's even harder for us to gear up and get behind, right? But maybe the question that we need to be asking ourselves this morning is, what am I willing to sacrifice so that someone might see Jesus, might see my obedience to him? Is that leaving a comfortable job to go overseas to preach the gospel to a, a people group that has less than 1% of their population that know Christ or that don't have a copy of God's word in their language? Is that sacrificing how many times you eat out this week or next week or this month and sending some, um, some money to the church in Mexico that has an opportunity to buy a new plot of land, this church that we've partnered with for years serving down there? ask ourselves, in what ways is Jesus calling me to obediently sacrifice something for his name's sake? When we come to verse 7, the Lord God will help me, therefore I have not been humiliated. Therefore I've set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. The obedient servant is not put to shame. All indicators here, in some sense, show us Jesus being humiliated. Like we, we can see him being spat on and beaten and mocked and um, they gamble for his clothes, but he acknowledges who? His sovereign God. We see it again here, the Lord God. Adonai Yahweh will help me. Even when I'm beaten and bruised, he will help me. Even when I'm falsely accused, he will help me. Even when it looks like the world is falling apart around me, he will help me. So see Jesus here, friends. See, take heart and courage. The Lord God, even in great suffering, will be your help. Like he did not make promises that this Christian walk would be a cakewalk, right? He doesn't promise prosperity and comfort if you act a certain way or you call yourself a certain thing. But he says, I will be your help in time of need. I will be your fortress. I will be your comfort. I will be your peace. He is our help. And just like the nation of Israel here, we wants us to turn to him. So Jesus, in spite of this beating, mockery, suffering, sets his face like flint. He's assured he won't be put to shame. He'll be glorified. He'll be exalted. He'll be resurrected. 
So don't overlook this. Even though he knows God will be his help, he sets his face forward like Flint. There's a personal dedication to the task. In Luke 9, as he's preparing to go to the cross, it says, when the days were coming to a close, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. His resolve was sustained by his instruction, by his open ears, by his confidence in the Lord, by the joy set before him. And I say this to remind us that yes, the Lord is our help, but there is a personal action to being an obedient servant. We don't earn salvation through works. We don't do enough good things for God to accept us. We don't, we don't sit on comfy cushions waiting for him to return. Like there's a sense of personal devotion that is required to grow in your walk with him. You know, there's, a, there's an old saying that you don't drift towards holiness. So set your face like flint. Get up morning by morning. Struggle toward it. I know some of you are familiar with Oswald Chambers, the great devotional writer, you know, my utmost for his highest. He said this, one step in obedience is worth years of study about it. In verse 9, we'll see the obedient servant is confident in the Lord. He says, in truth, the Lord will help me. Who will condemn me? Indeed, all of them will wear out like a garment. A moth will devour them. Like these verses read kind of like a trial scene that characterize a lot of the passage that we're looking at. And we see the servant may be exposed to challenge and to dispute. He might be accused before the people, but he will not give in. He's encouraged in the Lord's help. Every attempt will be made to discredit and attack the servant, but none of it will stick. He will wear out his opponents. They will be no longer lasting than these garments eaten by moths. And he takes heart in God's reliability, in the, the Lord God, the sovereign master that he will endure to the end. So I'm reminded here even of Paul's words in Romans, in Romans 8. It looks almost exactly like this passage. He says, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God's the one who justifies. Verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. So Paul is so sure of justification that every attempt to condemn the law power of death none of it is has any power it's all futile because of christ's overruling it because the gospel negates everything the world can throw at it so finally we come to these last two verses in our text and really the speaker changes here this is no longer the servant speaking because if it was he would say i ask you this question but it but it says in verse 10 who among you fears the Lord and listens to his servant? Who among you walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord. Let him lean on his God. These two parts here, these last two verses, really draw together kind of earlier elements in this passage. Like this is Robert Frost's two roads diverging in a yellow wood. These are your two choices, right? I think this part's vital for us to read because in its essence, it represents two choices in response to the obedient servant. Having given examples of the servant's obedience and faithfulness in times of deep trouble, Israel must choose one of two options. So they must choose to listen to the servant or to ignore him and light their own way. There's really this, in this verse 10, this parallel between the obedience of the servant and a call to be the people who are obedient. This verse is full of, of positive verbs, right? Fear, obey, listen, walk, trust, lean on. 
all positive actions related to the obedient servant. And it's interesting here that darkness is mentioned. I think in a number of places you can think of in Scripture, darkness is mentioned as this spiritual um, darkness, like separation from God, judgment. But this darkness here more refers to not being able to see a future outcome. It's not a spiritual darkness as much, but it's also as if the narrator is like writing his own proverb. Better to walk in the dark with the Lord than in the light without him. That's where we come to verse 11. We see that contrast. It says, look, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with torches, walk in the light of your fire and of the torches you have lit. This is what you'll get from my hand. You will lie down in a place of torment. We see that the one who tries to make their own path with their own light. God, I know how many of you in this room have ever built your own fire. Like I say that instead of started a fire because that's different. That can be a misdemeanor or felony, right? But if you've, if you've built a fire, there's different methods. Uh, there's the like TP method, you know, you make the kindling and put it all in there. You got the like log cabin method that it breathes well. And you've got the squirt a bunch of lighter fluid on some logs and throw a match on it method that's kind of easy, right? But we, we light fires for different reasons. When, when we had that giant freeze in Texas, a lot of us lit fires for the first time in our fireplaces to try to stay warm. Or I light a lot of fires to start my, um, my grill when I'm going to smoke a brisket or something. But in this chapter, making your own fire is akin to choosing not to follow God. It's, it's not relying on him. It's circling up to see one another and to, there's a bit of warning in it, right? This is, this is all you will get. You'll see for a moment, but it won't last, is, is what he's saying. There's a serious word of warning here. You see this positive example in verse 10 of an affirmation of everything we read in the servant song. In verses 4 through 9, the servant of these voices, verses at a great cost teaches the way of life the way of abundant and full life with confidence and trust. The negative example of verse 11 is the echo of the theme of sin and falling away Verses in verses 1 and 3. It's the way of rejection. It's the way of self-reliance. It's the way of choosing to abuse the servant or maybe even not actively opposing him, but simply being unresponsive to him. So as the band comes up, my, my goal this morning is not to point a uh, a harsh finger at anyone. Like, honestly, my, my hope and my desire is that you see Jesus and you see yourself this morning in light of him. See Jesus. I pray that we as a church are a people who are obediently choosing to listen to the sovereign word of God, to the sovereign Lord and to sustain the weary. If you're a follower of Christ, I would ask you to ask of him in what areas of my life do I need to submit to you? In what areas should I be characterized by obedience where I'm currently rebellious? I've turned my back. I've chosen the easy route. I've lit my own fires. You might have never had a moment where you recognize the sovereign Lord's movement toward you, and today could be your opportunity. Like there's, there's not a magic formula. There's not a certain prayer, but it begins with admitting your own sin before a God who is willing to sustain you, who's made a way for you to know him through sending the obedient servant, this one who would fulfill the prophecy of the book of Isaiah 
and the law that we never could in such a perfect way that it satisfies his justice. He wants you to follow him. And sometimes it's in darkness. Sometimes it's not sure of what the outcome will be. But he says, I'll be your, I'll be your hope. You can lean on me. You can trust me even in that darkness. It's the better way than lighting your own fire and following your own path, making your own way. He can be your help. So we'll take a moment now where we'll sing to this great Lord God, the sovereign one. And if you want to take steps closer to him, I'll be in the back over here. We can talk about that now, but please come and talk with me about this as we sing and worship the one who is worthy of all praise.